0: Good day to you, fine gentlemen, the wardrobe of moral imagination, and Scotch-Cuban. Welcome, fine gentlemen, the wardrobe. The strength of free peoples resides in the local community, de teku. Frankly, a great leading quote. That's right. Good old French Phil, debased Phil. We don't know if he was based. Maybe he was just a really good, a really good journalist. Are there such things? Are there good journalists? We don't know. We just don't know. Take a journalist with a truckload of salt, is what they all say. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to get right into it. Drongo, good evening and welcome. Chapter two of Dittaku Democracy in America. On the point of departure and its importance for the future of the Anglo-Americans. A man is born. His first years pass unnoticed in the pleasures and travails Of childhood. He grows up, manhood begins, at last the doors of the world open to receive him. He enters into contact with his fellow man. People begin to study him and think they can perceive the seeds that will develop into the vices and virtues of maturity. This, if I am not mistaken, is a great error. Go back in time, examine the babe when still in its mother's arms. See the external world reflected for the first time in the still dark mirror of his intelligence. Contemplate the first models to make an impression on him. Listen to the words that first awaken his dormant powers of thought. Take note, finally, of the first battles he is obliged to fight. Only then will you understand where the prejudices, habits, and passions that will dominate his life come from. In a matter of speaking, the whole man already lies swaddled in his cradle. Something analogous happens with nations. Every people bears the mark of its origins. The circumstances that surround its birth and aid its development also influenced the subsequent course of its existence. If we could trace societies back to their elements and examine the earliest records of their history, I have no doubt that we would discover the first cause of their prejudices, habits, and dominant passions, indeed of every aspect of what has been called the national character. We would discover explanations for customs that today seem at odds with prevailing mores, for laws that seem to clash with accepted principles, and for the inconsistent opinions that one occasionally encounters in a society. Opinions reminiscent of the fragments of broken chain that one sometimes finds dangling from the vaults of an old building, no longer supporting anything. This might explain the destiny of certain peoples, who seem propelled by an unknown force toward an end undivined even by themselves. Until now, however, the facts needed for such a study have been lacking. Nations developed an analytic spirit only as they grow old, and before it occurred to them to reflect on their beginnings, time had already shrouded the moment of their inception in fog, and ignorance and pride had surrounded it with fables behind which the truth lay hidden. America is the only country in which it has been possible to witness the natural and tranquil course of a society's development and to pinpoint the influence of a state's point of departure on its future. By the time the peoples of Europe landed on the shores of the New World, the traits of their national characters were already fully formed. Each of them had a distinct physiognomy. Having already achieved that degree of civilization, which inclines men to study themselves, they left us a faithful portrait of their opinions, mores, and laws. We know the men of the 15th century almost as well as we know ourselves. America, therefore, exposes to the light of day what the ignorance and barbarity of the earliest times conceal close enough to the time when the societies of America were founded to be acquainted in detail with their elements yet far enough away to form a judgment of what those seeds have produced. We seem destined to see further into human events than our predecessors did. Providence has placed within our reach, a torch our fathers lacked a torch that allows us when examining the destiny of nations to make out first causes that the obscurity of the past hid from our forebears. if after attentively studying the history of America, one carefully examines its political and social state, one becomes firmly convinced of the following truth, that there is not a single opinion, habit, or law, I might almost say not a single event, which the point of departure cannot readily explain. Hence, anyone who reads this book will find in the present chapter the germ of what follows and the key to virtually the entire work. The immigrants who come at various times to occupy the territory of what is now the American Union differed from one another in many respects their goals were not the same and they governed themselves according to a variety of principles nevertheless those men shared certain traits in common and all found themselves in a similar situation the bond of language is perhaps the strongest and most durable that exists among men all the immigrants spoke the same language all were children of the same people born in a country riven by centuries of partisan strife in which one faction after another had been obliged to seek the protection of the law. Their political education had been conducted in this harsh school. And they shared more notions of rights and more principles of true liberty than most other European peoples. By the time of the earliest immigrations, local government, that prolific seed of free institutions, was already deeply ingrained in English habits. And the dogma of popular sovereignty thereby implanted itself at the very heart of the Tudor monarchy. At that time, the Christian world was agitated by religious controversy. With a kind of frenzy, England had plunged headlong into the fray. A people whose character had always been grave and deliberate now became austere and argumentative. Education improved greatly in the course of these intellectual struggles. The cultivation of the intellect achieved a new depth. At a time when religion was on everyone's lips, morals grew purer. All of these general national features were reflected to one degree or another in the physiognomies of these sons of England who arrived on the opposite shore of the Atlantic in search of a new future. A further remark, to which I shall have occasion to return later, applies not only to the English, but also to the French, the Spanish, and all the other Europeans who settled one after another on the shores of the New World. All the new European colonies invariably contained at least the germ, if not the mature form, of a complete democracy. There were two reasons for this. It is fair to say that on the whole, when immigrants left their mother country, they have no notion of any kind of superiority of some over others. It was scarcely the happy and powerful who chose exile and poverty, together with misfortune, is the best guarantee we know of equality among men. On occasion, however, a great lord might flee to America in the wake of a political or religious quarrel, although laws establishing a hierarchy of ranks were adopted there. It soon became clear that American soil was implacably hostile to landed aristocracy. People realized that if this refractory soil was to be cultivated, it would take nothing less than the constant and self-interested effort of those who owned the land. When the ground was tilled, its fruits proved insufficient to enrich both a master and a farmer. It was therefore natural for the land to be divided into small holdings, each just large enough to be farmed by its owner without assistance. But aristocracy is rooted in the soil. It is attached to and dependent on land. It is not just privilege that establishes an aristocracy and not just birth that constitutes it. It is property and land passed on from generation to generation. A nation may engender both vast wealth and grinding poverty. But if that wealth is not territorial, one finds only rich or poor among its people, not aristocrats in the true sense of the word. Hence, there was a marked family resemblance among the various English colonies at their inception. From the first, all seemed destined to encourage the growth of liberty, not the aristocratic liberty of the mother country, but bourgeois and democratic liberty of which history as yet offered no fully developed model. Such was the general complexion of things, but we must also pay careful attention to any number of distinct variations. Within the great Anglo-American family, we find two main branches, which have thus far matured without altogether losing their identity, one in the south, the other in the north. Virginia was home to the first English colony. Immigrants arrived there in 1607. Europe at the time was still singularly preoccupied by the idea that gold and silver mines constitute the wealth of nations, a disastrous idea that did more to impoverish the European nations that embraced it and destroyed more men in America than war and iniquitous laws combined. It was therefore gold seekers who were sent to Virginia, men without resources or discipline, whose restless, turbulent spirit caused trouble for the colony in its early days and rendered its progress uncertain. Then came workingmen and farmers, a more moral and tranquil breed, but not much above the lower classes of England in any respect. No noble thought or immaterial contrivance presided over the foundation of these new settlements. No sooner was the colony created than slavery was introduced. This capital fact was to exert an immense influence on the character, laws, and entire future of the South. Slavery, as I will explain later, dishonors labor, It introduces idleness into society and with it ignorance and pride, poverty and luxury. It saps the powers of the mind and lulls human activity to sleep. The influence of slavery combined with the English character explains the Moors and social state of the South. In the North, the English background was the same, but the foreground was painted in very different shades. I beg the reader's indulgence while I fill in a few details. It was in the English colonies of the North, better known as the New England States, that the two or three principal ideas which today form the basis of the social theory of the United States were first combined. The principles of New England spread initially to nearby states. Little by little, they made their way to the farthest reaches of the Confederation until ultimately they had, if I may put it this way, penetrated throughout. Their influence extended beyond New England's borders to the entire American continent. The civilization of New England was like a bonfire on a hilltop, which, having spread its warmth to its immediate vicinity, tinges even the distant horizon with its glow. The founding of New England presented a novel spectacle. Everything about it was singular and original. <clears throat> the first inhabitants of most other colonies were men with neither education nor means to entrepreneurs. Some colonies could not claim even that much about their origins. Santo Domingo was founded by pirates, and even now the courts of England are making it their mission to populate Australia. The immigrants who settled on the shores of New England all belonged to the well-to-do classes of the mother country. From the first, what was striking about their gathering on American soil was that here was a society with neither great lords nor commoners. Indeed, one might almost say with neither rich nor poor. These people possessed a proportionately greater quantity of enlightenment than any European nation today. All virtually without exception had received a reasonably advanced education and any number were renowned in Europe for their talents and learning. Other colonies had been founded by adventurers without families. These people who immigrated to New England brought with them admirable elements of order and morality. They went into the wilderness with their wives and children, but what distinguished them most of all from other colonizers was the very purpose of their enterprise. It was by no means necessity that forced them to leave their native land. They left behind enviable social positions and secure incomes. They did not travel to the new world in the hope of improving their situation or enhancing their wealth. They tore themselves away from the pleasures of home in obedience to a purely intellectual need. They braved the inevitable miseries of exile because they wished to ensure the victory of an idea. These immigrants, or as they so aptly styled themselves, pilgrims, belonged to that English sect whose austere principles had earned it the name Puritan. Puritanism was not just a religious doctrine. In several respects, it coincided with the most absolute democratic and republican theories. It was this aspect of Puritanism that had aroused its most dangerous adversaries against it. Persecuted by the government of the mother country and offended by the routine ways of a society at odds with the rigorous principles by which they lived, the Puritans sought a land so barbarous and so neglected that they might still be allowed to live there as they wished and pray to God in liberty. A few quotations will throw more light on the spirit of these pious adventurers than anything I might say. Nathaniel Morton, the historian of New England's early years, broaches the subject thus. I have always thought that it was a sacred duty of ours whose fathers received so many and such memorable tokens of divine goodness in the establishment of this colony, to perpetuate the memory of it in writing. What we have seen and what we have been recounted to us by our fa- by our fathers, we must make known to our children, so that the generations to come may learn to praise the Lord, so that the progeny of Abraham his servant and the sons of Jacob his chosen may always keep the memory of the miraculous works of God. They must know how the Lord brought his vine into the desert, how he planted it and cast out the pagans, how he prepared a place for it, rooted it deeply, and then allowed it to spread and cover the land far and wide. And not only that, but also how he guided his people toward his holy tabernacle and established it on the mountain of his inheritance. These facts should be known so that God may derive from them the honor that is due him. And so that some rays of his glory may fall upon the venerable names of the saints that served him as instruments. No reader of this opening passage can fail to be moved in spite of himself by its solemn religious feeling. It breathes the air of antiquity and is redolent of a kind of biblical fragrance. The writer's conviction elevates his style. One begins to see with his eyes, not a small band of adventurers gone to seek their fortune across the sea, but the seed of a great people set down in a promised land by the hand of God. And we shall pause it there. Who dares wins? Welcome, fine sir. I need a flat cap to complete the look. I really do. should bring my peak cap back into the things. Andrew Quinn, welcome, fine sir. Copper Star, greetings to you, King Kang Fed, and the woman I know who is hiding somewhere. John Null, good afternoon. De Tocqueville was an aristocrat, very much not a journal. Well, praise God, he'll he'll pass, he'll pass. We won't burn the book. Scott Cuban, this should be a required reading for the kiddies. Fianor, good evening, fine sir. Uh, Copper Star, I refuse the Saxon lie that America was founded by the English. Gaelic Brotherhood has spoken. Well, you know we uh we have to have some saxon supremacy here and there you know the gaelics they will go hide in a swamp uh, come out every now and then blow a flute or a horn or some such uh, you are allowed to do so and you may carry on sean thomas welcome fine sir and praise god from whom all blessings flow <clears throat> john knoll pretty based quote they were carried by a conviction that God was with them. Yeah. So I just really wanted to kind of riff off of, of this little uh, part in the chapter from de Tocqueville on a, a peculiar people who believe, you know, I when you talk about a Neo Amish vibe or a Jewish vibe or, or a, a Mormon vibe, all of them are religiously, they are religious. They are spiritually and ethnically intertwined. You know, so yesterday we spoke about blood and soil. So ethnic and geographically, ethnically and geographically intertwined. And what we just read now is spiritually and ethnically intertwined. You know, so a people cannot exist without a spiritual thread. You know, and that is why liberalism has taken on a religious nature it, you know what defines global homo what defines uh the west today is a people intertwined uh with a religious belief in liberalism however <clears throat> there is no there is no singular people and there's no singular place it's it's this it's this humanism this this humanism that all people um, are, are interchangeable and that all places are the same, all places, you know, no place is special. No place is peculiar. No people are special. No, no people are peculiar. And that is the great unraveling of liberalism. That is the great downfall of liberalism is that it has no people and it has no place. It only exploits and abuses people. It only exploits and abuses place. And so what is the what is the antidote out of global liberalism? What is the the what is the way through and the way out? <clears throat> is the adaption, the adopting of a love for your people, a love for your place. Unfortunately that's not enough you have to replace the religious aspect you you have to the vacuum you know because you can't just you can't just be a a uh, a liberal nationalist or a you know a liberal localist or a liberal patriarch you know i love my family i love my local area i love my tribe but we're liberal like that that doesn't work that doesn't work because liberalism by nature destroys the barriers of family liberalism by nature destroys the barrier of local liberalism by nature destroys the barrier of tribe. You know, how dare you gatekeep and exclude, um, and, and have distinction between friend and enemy. You know, everyone is, you know, a cosmopolitan liberal utopian person, you know, So, okay, we're nationalist, you know, we're blood and soil, we're people and place. This is wonderful. But there has to be a, a religious thread, a spiritual thread, a because what is the purpose of religion? What is the purpose? You know, it's its worldview, right? It's the frame, it's origin, meaning, morality, destiny. That is the religious aspect. Origin, where do we come from? You know, so for us as Christians, it's the Genesis narrative. Origin. And the Genesis narrative plays out all the way to today to our people. <clears throat> meaning, what is the meaning of life? You know, we find that through through uh, you know, what is the meaning that God has given? What is the the meaning that God has placed on life? You know, it's to uh, it's to take dominion over the earth. It's to uh, get married, have a family, uh, lay up an inheritance for your children's children. Uh, it's to disciple the nations. You know, this is the kind of meaning, uh, you know, it's to go and give your gift. It's to it's to um, be a patriarch, be a local legend, be a tribal legend for your people. These are all things that give us immense meaning. You know, morality is, is clearly defined in the Bible. And, you know, you look at old Stefan Molyneux, you know, It's hilarious because being an atheist, his life's work was to create a moral code without appealing to God, without appealing to a higher being or a a spiritual being, just no, a rational, moral, he called it universally preferable behavior. And it's hilarious because he, 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 being this chief atheist, once he came out with this book universally preferable behavior all of his all of his greatest fans were were all a bunch of christians going like yeah thank you you have you have clarified and explained the bible and all the atheists who he thought would be joyful uh, what do you call it celebrating his work or like screw you like because they the whole reason they are atheists is because they didn't want to be moral so they didn't want a moral code they didn't want uh to understand why we should be living a life of morality, whereas all the Christians are like, "Hey, nice commentary you've got on the Bible there, Bucko," <laughs> you know. So, so morality is very important to a people, and you have to, you have to for that for the ADIQ. You know, Stefan is a galaxy brain, but for the ADIQ to Midwit population, you know, you need to appeal to the to a higher power. You need to appeal um, to a higher authority. You know. I don't care. I'm not a galaxy brain. I don't care to go and understand theologically why the Ten Commandments are the way the Ten Commandments are. But when you get to a place of authority systems, we're like, "Hey, look, chaps! In this tribe, here's the morality that we do. You do the morality, you get rewarded. You don't do the morality, you get punished. You get disciplined. You get discipled." It's like, okay, makes sense, makes sense. You know, like at the end of the day every morality has an appeal either to an authority system or a higher power. And that's okay. That's great. You know, the galaxy brains can figure out why and why not and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it comes down to to most of your normies, your NPCs being like, yeah, whatever the group says, I will do. Normies follow institutional norms. You know, what are they talking about? Morality. Right now we are following politically correct liberal morality. That is the, the morality of the land is liberalism. Secular human, humanism, liberalism. Free market capitalism. This is the morality of the land, <clears throat> and then destiny. You know, again, the religious aspect of destiny. So, as Christians, uh, one aspect of destiny is is eternal life. One aspect of destiny is that what we do in this life affects our afterlife a second aspect of destiny is that we we are we are survived by we are we are carried on by our children's children that that's an aspect of destiny <clears throat> and so it's it's really important any people who love their people love their place they also need an aspect of higher religion higher spirituality to twine to to be the third twine Uh, in in strengthening that bond of people in place. And so John, with that quote there, they were carried by a conviction that God was with them. You know, that, that has to be, that has to be the operating system of any tribe of any new group of people who are going to break away from liberalism. Otherwise you won't make the sacrifices Uh, you know, that come with a loss of comfort and a loss of political correctness. Sean Thomas, welcome, fine sir. Uh, Can only be free if people are free in Christ. People enslaved to their sins can't be free. Our freedom does seem to hinge on Christ ruling over us and us seeking freedom in Christ alone. Dude, condemnation, condemnation will kill you. It's exactly this as well. You know, a a lot of people don't know how to deal with their condemnation. A lot of people don't know how to deal with their conscience condemning them, you know. And, and that's, this is a huge aspect for us in overcoming the number one kind of weapon against us, which is to be called a racist. So many whites who are under the condemnation of liberalism, who are under the, the spiritual condemnation of liberalism, are so condemned within themselves that the moment someone comes and says, You ought to be punished because you're a racist, they're like, Yes, punish me, please. I'm condemned because they, they believe they are condemned. When you come to Christ and and you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, that Jesus Christ uh has washed your sin, nature, you you are a new creation. I am now, I am now a son of God, an heir of God. I am now the bride of Christ I am now a king that Christ is king of it's a it's an identity change and no longer am I living condemned no longer am I living expecting to be punished in fact I live expecting to be blessed i am blessed because of Christ's righteousness and so that's how i live i live blessed Deuteronomy 28 is now applicable to my people the a, a huge part of it you know so much so much of my kind of Disappointment at the at the popular church at the popular, you know, ministry domain, you know, it leads you to thinking like ugh, like it would probably be better off without the church. We'd probably be better off like not appealing to Christianity. But when you come down to it, you cannot be free of liberalism and the condemnation uh, of the sinful nature uh, without without first understanding that that Christ is everything, you know, that that he designed the world, you know, in Christ. Uh, I'm trying to think it's probably in Corinthians or whatever that, that scripture, uh, in him and through him were all things made. You know, it's literally this, this understanding of like the great creator. We are the agents of the great creator. We are the kings that Christ is king of. It, it brings sense, it brings order to your life. And it cleans your conscience, it cleans everything up of like, you know, there is no more roadblock uh, when when liberals come against you with condemnation and punishment. It's like, sorry, fellas, I'm I'm super clean, I'm super free. Who dare's wins? Liberalism is moral syphilis, Jonathan Bowden. Based. If only uh, if only it killed people, that's at quite a quicker. Quicker rate. Who knows? Copper Star, Fionor, I'm sure you have. I get on, say, some borderline Fed post, where then the wife <laughs> reminds me to go outside and do something productive. Many such cases. Drongo, I couldn't help noticing race plus morale was translated as nobler breed. Classic modern translator trying to avoid the R word. Bunch of retards. Oh, the other R word. <clears throat> Copper Star, uh, you make trouble for the tribe. You get disciples. <clears throat> Sean, Colossians one is what I think you are referring to. Thank you, uh, John. No, the Bible teaches very clearly that God gives a land and inheritance to peoples who walk in righteousness and in covenant with Him, and takes it from those who break covenant with Him. Yeah, it, you know, and and it's that whole thing of like, you know, God doesn't change; He is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, the covenants have changed. You know, we are now no longer we are now no longer bound to the um, the uh, mosaic covenant, the the Moses and Aaron covenant law, of trying to earn our righteousness and having to pay off our sin actions with blood sacrifices and all that kind of stuff so so we're in a new covenant because of jesus so jesus is our new high priest of a new covenant but god remains the same so how god treated a people group and wanted to bless a people group and wanted uh, to operate through a people group for the discipleship and and dominion of the earth and the nations god is the same god you know, and that's why you can take Deuteronomy 28 and apply it to your people group. You know, if our people group understands that it is blessed, and understands that to obey God, you will be blessed, and these blessings will overtake you, and there will be there will be an inheritance and a land. Uh, and you know, it's exactly that. When you read, uh, there's another great uh, history book called The Light and the Glory, but it's all about these these pilgrims and Puritans, and just the the absolutely absurd blessings. Uh, that followed them uh, throughout their their colonization of the new the new land the new the promised land, and so it is for us. You know, we 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 must we must take from the Old Testament people groups the same learnings of like, okay, this is how God wants to deal with a people group who consider Him to be their God. that's us today, you know, there's that classic meme. I loved it. Uh, You know, someone was, was uh, dissing on, I I can't remember what they called it, like covenant, whatever, but um, I'm trying to think Willem Dafoe, it's got Willem Dafoe. And he's like, "Uh, I consider myself an Israel. And it's like, it's exactly that, you know, we, we are the new Israel. We are the new, uh, the covenant that was, uh, was Israel's originally, um, has been passed on to us, you know, and it's like you, that is such a, that is such a 101 ADIQ understandable position. And maybe that's why so many midwits and galaxy brains struggle with it, but it's like, you have to see your people group as being a people group who will serve the Lord and follow the Lord. And then the Lord will bless them. The Lord will give them land. The Lord will will keep them and, uh, you know, praise God for it. Who dares wins? Uh, Bowden had very similar takes. A lot of his speeches are on YouTube. He's no longer with us and was a pagan. He was very based though. Yeah, I love uh, Bowden. I've I've watched quite a few of his speeches. Um, And that's always been very interesting to me. You know, Bowden being a pagan, he was still very honorable, very respectful of the Christian religion. Now he believed that the Christian religion led to softness. And it's like... You know, there's so many pagans who who are completely right in their desi- in their uh, uh, diagnosis. You know, of like, oh, the current popular church is a bunch of soft. You know, but it's like what they're what they are what they are seeing is an institutional capture. You know, the church was captured. We are. That does not abrogate that you know Europe, England, but the European nations, Christianity is what made us great. You know, Christianity is what made the European nations great. It's what led to peace and prosperity. It's what led to civilization. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, I need to get that that chap's name, but whatever that organizational law is of like, after a certain period of time, uh, assume that any organization is controlled uh, by a cabal of its enemies. And that's the popular church today. That's, that's the Roman Catholic Church. That's the Church of England. That's the Protestant churches uh, in the West. Uh, I'm not too sure about the Orthodox churches. I, I I'm I don't really know much about them. <clears throat> but but to the vast majority of these cultural institutions, church, media, and academia, the cultural institutions, remember they're there a feminine energy, they're a feminine dynamic. They always follow power. The cultural institutions follow power, the sword, the crown, and the gold. You know, and so so if you have if you have a king whose heart is after the Lord then all of those cultural institutions will follow, you know? And, and right now we've just had so many people wearing the crown and bearing the sword and wielding the gold who are a bunch of shysters who, who dishonor the Lord and, and dishonor their people and dishonor their place. You know, that the cultural institutions have followed suit. It doesn't mean that uh, you know, cause they rail on Abrahamism is what they call it. Cause you know, and, and rightly so, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems in the, in the other two. Uh, Abrahamic religions, you know, so I, d- I don't mind these pagans railing and all the stuff like I can understand and, and hold space because a lot of their, a lot of their people and place um, ideology and people in place uh, principles and, and things that they talk about is, is phenomenal. It's wonderful. Thank you, who conquests law, any institution that isn't inherently right wing will become left wing over time. And then there's a further uh, a further like addition to that. And it's like, it's easiest to assume that it is controlled by a cabal of its enemies. Phenomenal, frankly. Well, gentlemen, I'm sorry to uh, cut it so short today, but I, I have a, uh, a bulk food drop off to attend. Uh, we're going to go and get our uh, Azure pickup. So we will be restocking our pantry and um, we'll be back to regular programming tomorrow but this has been a, uh, a fun little chat. Uh, we shall continue it. Um, I'm really enjoying just, you know, just heading into the, uh, uh, the blood and soil and gold um, and really just, you know, getting to this thing of, I think there's so much, I feel like the next meme gold vein that we're going into, you know, uh, I don't know, a couple months back, you know, Christian nationalism kind of hit a little flurry on, on the timeline and a lot of kind of normy academics uh, and then normie media guys kind of picked up Christian nationalism. They're like, oh, oh, it's okay to talk about Christian nationalism now? Well, I've I've always been for Christian nationalism. Let me give you my hot takes, thousand likes. And it's like, yeah, I, I feel like something like this is brewing for blood and soil. You know, as far as, well, like what's the difference? Christian nationalism, blood and soil. I think as far as a realistic assessment of ethnic dynamics of um of tribalism in a democratic system you know tribal resource wars i have a feeling there's going to be some things coming out especially um as resources get more and more expensive um to procure i think that people are going to start asking questions of you know how do i secure resources for my group how do i secure resources for my family for my local area for my tribe that previously would have been a bit taboo, a bit greedy. Um, whereas now I think it's, it's becoming, it's, it's, it's just realism. Chaps. It's realism. Come on. Oh, good stuff. Scotch Cuban. Yep. No, they're a great company as you well. praise God for them. Sean Thomas, Christ is King. Praise God. Copper star tough talk from people in crucifying range. My goodness, copper star, you just need a, just give those people some whoosh, tough talk now let's now let's whoosh, get up there praise god boys love you all and we'll see you tomorrow